This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, December 4th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, good morning. I'm glad you guys, that we are here together. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 33. Uh, If you are new with us, we go straight through books of the Bible. Right now, we're in the, near the end, actually, of the story of the life of Jacob, Uh, And a couple chapters will shift and we'll actually complete Genesis as we study the story of Joseph, which is a lot about suffering and and giving some perspective to suffering. It's going to be an enjoyable uh, study. But we're in Genesis 33 today. I'm going to read the whole chapter. If you follow along, it'll be on your screen. Verse 1 says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and look, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants drew near. They and their children bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. And thus he urged him, and he took it. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I'll go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and the herds Uh, are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of His servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, well, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought, bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is God's word. Now the story of uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, has, has come full circle. Uh, some time ago, having deceived his father and robbed his brother of his birthright, Jacob ran 500 miles away at the instruction of his mother with just the clothes on his back and a staff in his hand. And 20 years later, he returns to confront the brother who had threatened to kill him for his sin. 
Before stepping out of the land of Canaan when he left, God had promised to keep Jacob safe and to bring him back to his land again. And God, in the process when Jacob was away, refined him, changed him, transformed him in many ways through the same kind of sin that he had committed against his father and his brother. After 20 years of struggle, God commands him to return home, but not before one final change that we read about last week through a divine wrestling match of sorts. Jacob is both broken and blessed at the same time. He will be a cripple the rest of his life, but he will be a cripple with a new name. Limping along, if you will, to the glory of God who had changed him deeply. Now, there are actually lots of name changes in the Bible, um, but God Himself really only directly changes these three names. Uh, His grandfather Abram, his grandmother Sarai, or became Sarah, and Jacob himself. Abram had become Abraham, which meant exalted father to the nations, and Sarai had become Sarah, which was another word for princess, who would give birth to kings and nations. And each of the name changes declared something immediate about the person, but it also declared something prophetic, prophetic, like who they are and then who they will be one day. And immediately following the name changes, at least of, of Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah, God said very specific things to both of them. Things like, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will give you land. I will establish my covenant with you. I will bless her. And I will make her into nations. And I will give her a son. And I will make him great. I will, I will, I will. And we see that who they are and who they will be is dependent upon what God Himself is going to do. And the same is with Jacob. He tells Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob's new name means, among other things, to strive or fight with God. It's a name inspired, as I said, by a very personal and intimate and painful wrestling match that changed him forever. And in that moment, God declares who he was and who he is going to be. You're no longer Jacob, you're going to be Israel. But the man with the new name we will see today struggles to live out his God-given identity as one of God's kids. That even though he's been made new, he lives many times as if he is old. The fight with God may be over, but now Jacob is going to fight constantly himself. The new man fights with the old man the rest of his life. The new man is fighting to depend upon the Spirit and submit to God's rule, but the old man fights to depend upon the self and reject God's rule. Now, 
before anyone is in Christ, before anyone is saved by Jesus, called by God to be His child in the faith, there is no tension between the old and the new. There's just the old. But for anyone who is in Christ, the struggle between the old and the new is very familiar. The tension between the desires of the heart of what you want to do and the desires of the flesh is very real. And that is the old man fighting the new man. See, sin has no power or authority over our hearts and souls in Christ, but sin still remains present and influential in our minds and in our bodies. And even though Jacob has been given a new name, walking in the reality of that name is a struggle for him. Put another way, God not only saves us, but what we see in Scripture is that He is continuing to save us in the sense of perfecting and maturing our communion and our relationship with Him. And in order to do this, one of the tools God uses is imperfect relationships with one another. And He uses it like a crucible to to change us. And in some ways, these difficult relationships, they they reveal the change in us because there is change. And we have opportunity to, to, to reveal that. But they also expose our remaining brokenness that needs to be removed. But hopefully, as we see in this broken relationship, God actually teaches us about Himself, more importantly. So first, let's talk about how God uses relationships to to transform us or maybe to reveal the change that's taken place. I think it's a good question to ask. How do you know someone's relationship with God has changed? How do people know, other than the limp that Jacob has, that God has met him and their relationship has changed? has changed in some way, been been gone deeper, been renewed, been created, whatever you want to say. And I'm convinced that you can see that someone's relationship with God has changed by how they relate to one another. That our vertical relationship manifests itself out in our horizontal. And if you find you have a tremendous number of broken relationships with other people, that actually reveals something about your relationship with the Lord. That that is probably where the problem begins. With Jacob, shortly after his divine wrestling match, he lifts his eyes and he sees Esau right there. He's got his 400 people coming. He's been trying to prepare for that, trying to deal with his fear, and it's likely, despite the angel army that he seems to have with him, He's terrified. Jacob's actions, but more significantly, his attitude, reveal, though, that he's been changed. Even though he probably has a desire to run, he doesn't. Even though he has the right to rule Esau, it's his right, his birthright. It's been declared by dad. He's the one to rule He doesn't. Even though he has no reason to believe that this confrontation will end in anything other than hatred and violence, he actually takes a step to reconcile with someone who he sees as a hostile enemy. 
So the first thing Jacob does, revealing a change in his heart, is that he initiates confrontation rather than running away or even waiting for it. See, old Jacob was a conflict avoider. Avoided conflict as much as he could. Old Jacob deceived. Old Jacob hid behind his mom. This time, we see him put his family in order, in order of importance to him. You can see Joseph is in the back, wants to protect him the most, which tells you all the problems that are created in the back end of Genesis. Loves Joseph because he is the son of the one he loves so much, which is Rachel. But he lays his family out in order and then he steps in front. He leads in the confrontation. He's not hiding behind his wives or his children or his servants. He did not allow his fear to overwhelm him. He took the confrontation head on like a man. He's not passive. He's not aggressive. He's not passive aggressive. He is not a cheater. He is not even a peacekeeper. He is endeavoring to be, as Jesus calls us to be, peacemaker. Our culture is very ill-equipped in this regard. A growing number of our difficult conversations that we have with people happen online, if at all. We have become, I think, very, and this is believer, non-believer, everyone, almost incapable of initiating confrontations in a healthy way. Unwilling to handle broken relationships in a godly way. Texting, emailing, and social media has allowed us, ironically, to engage more than ever, but in an ungodly, impersonal, and very destructive way when relationships are broken. I'm not suggesting that those things don't allow us to to, uh, have relationships that are healthy, to connect with one another in good ways, but I wonder if it's actually encouraging us more so in the very opposite. We live in a world of likes and dislikes, of ratings and cyber-shaming. And when people feel hurt, when people feel unheard, when people feel wrong, they pass subtle hints through posting articles rather than making phone calls. They unfriend rather than having friendly conversations. They flat out slander and call it freedom of expression. I'm just sharing my, how I feel. That's not what Jacob does. Not that he had his iPhone. The Romans hadn't invented that yet, right? He confronts, and he does so humbly. Does so personally. I could stop there and say, go and do likewise, and we'd be done. But he does more. He comes, not only confronts, Jacob makes a confession. He doesn't ask explicitly for forgiveness for his deception but he approaches Esau with tremendous humility. He bows before him seven times as he comes to Esau, which would have been the traditional response when coming to a vassal lord. 
Someone who has more power, more authority. And not only does he bow, his servants bow, his wives bow, his children bow. And as you read through the text, you see that not only does he bow seven times, he calls Esau Lord at least five times. And in doing so, he is inherently and implicitly acknowledging his sin. Because he robbed the birthright, which actually gave Jacob authority. And he is in many ways confessing Esau's authority, Esau's right to rule, the fact that he has wronged him. They both know this. Esau knows exactly what Jacob has done. Jacob knows exactly what he has done to Esau. But you see that Jacob doesn't recount the situation. He doesn't minimize and explain, well, this is what I was thinking. And, you know, Mom, she told me this would be a good idea. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't make excuses. All he does is get low. He just gets low. I'm reminded of a passage in 1 Peter, which is something I think we should all read. Ironically, or I think most importantly, it's actually a passage that begins speaking to elders and pastors. But in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, it says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or fears, sound like Jacob, on Him because He cares for you. And then it continues and says, be sober-minded. The devil, your adversary, is wandering around, roaming, looking for someone to devour. And, and what characterizes the devil more than anything but pride? Wanting us to be prideful. Especially when it comes to a broken relationship. Wanting to come up with reasons as to why I should not say anything. Why they should be the ones that come to me. Jacob gets low. When in doubt, get low. A broken relationship, I don't know who really did it wrong. I may have to get low. But that's not all Jacob does to reconcile this relationship. A third and final thing he does is he makes restitution. And again, this is all revealing how God has changed Jacob. Jacob comes with a present, which is the same word as blessing, ironically. Remember, this is the guy who deceived to get the blessing, rob the blessing. He's like, here, I'm bringing a blessing back to you. In many ways, Jacob is returning what he has stolen. Esau can offer forgiveness and acceptance based on Jacob's words and his humble actions, but I am convinced that full reconciliation is going to require and include restitution whereby what had been taken insofar as he can is tangibly restored to its original state, if not greater than. See, the gift of 
Jacob to Esau was designed to gain Esau's approval, in many ways to, to purchase his acceptance, which we'll talk about. But regardless, Jacob's effort to reconcile in this way is honorable, even if it proves ultimately unnecessary. Esau didn't need it. Jacob needed it. The one who commits the sin in the relationship is the one responsible for making it right. It's often been said that a thief is no longer a thief, not just when he stops taking, but when he gives and contributes. It's unlikely that Jacob or anyone's material gift is ever enough to make up for the damage done in a broken relationship. It's unlikely Esau or anyone's ever going, well, if they give me this much, everything will be okay. Regardless of that truth, proper reconciliation requires the victimizer to do more than just confess their wrong and ask for forgiveness. That is a start. That is a good thing. Restitution is is not designed for the victimizer to make him more acceptable. It's actually designed to make the victim restored. The victim blessed. To make the situation right and whole again. I think it's interesting as we consider how Jacob has changed the different things that Jacob could have done here. He had been told by God, I will keep you, I'll protect you, there's an angel army here. He could have approached Esau completely differently. God's got me, whatever. Hey Esau, yeah, I stole it, so what? Big deal, God's on my side. He could have done that. But he chooses not to. God didn't instruct him to do this, but God did move inside of him to do this and to make it right. So we see in this broken relationship an opportunity, if you will, for Jacob to reveal, this is what God has done in my heart. It's imperfect. It's not everything I could possibly do, but I'm making an effort to get low and make things right. But these same broken relationships are actually used to reveal what's not still right in us. God had prepared Jacob to meet Esau. And it's a very different confrontation than he had with Laban. When he met with Laban, his father-in-law, who had sinned against him, right? He just berated him. He knew he was in the right. And this time, he knows he's very much in the wrong. His heart has changed, and the strained relationship with Esau gives an opportunity to reveal that. But not everything has changed. There's still a little bit of Jacob in Israel. The same interaction is used by God here to reveal what is called the the indwelling sin that still remains in Jacob. The old man that's still fighting to, to reign and rule. As much as he has a new name and a new heart with new desires, that that new heart is still encased in an old sinful flesh that rears its ugliness every so often. If we consider all the things that changed, consider things that didn't, Jacob actually is somewhat demanding of Esau. doesn't seem like that at first. When Esau does not 
act as Jacob expects. He brings in this present and Jacob, I'm sorry, Esau asked Jacob, like, why, why did you send all these animals? What's, what's all these animals you sent ahead? Remember, he sent droves of animals and servants saying, this is a present for you. This is a present for you. And Jacob says, well, I'm, I'm, I wanted to win your favor. And Esau says, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And essentially, Esau refuses Jacob's blessing. But Jacob won't have that. The Bible says that it urges him, pushes him. And we might seem that that's just Jacob, like, no, 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 please, please, please. No, no, I'm not, oh, please, please. He is more than just insisting, he is actually imposing. See, accepting the gift culturally would have been a very a, a marked moment. Culturally, the exchange would have been similar to a formal affirmation of peace in their relationship. In many ways, Jacob wants more than his word. He wants his signature. He wants your guarantee that we're actually at peace. He doesn't fully trust Esau. You have remnants of the old Jacob, I believe, as you see him trying to manipulate, trying to secure safety for himself. Then not fully trusting Esau, not fully trusting God. And so he urges him, no, 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 I won't say, I will refute, no, take it. Okay. But that's not all old man Jacob does, we see he's actually still deceptive. Agreeing to take his gift, Esau says, hey, let's journey together. Let's, let's move down and go to Seir together. Come to my home. And he even offers to lead the way as a gesture of protection. i got my 400 men. There's enemies around. I will, I will lead your family. I will protect you. Jacob refuses, telling Esau, well, you know, the kids are really frail right now. The livestock are really weak. They're all going to die if I keep pushing them. We need to go really slow. So you go ahead. You go ahead and, um, and I, will, I will come at my pace to, to your home. Esau said, hey, let me leave some servants with you to help you because that's a lot of kids and a lot of animals. Let me leave some of these 400 men with you to go with you. Esau is just grace upon grace. <clears throat> Again, Jacob says no. No, no, no. That's No, it's unnecessary. I'll be fine. I have no need for help. And so Esau returns to his home in the south in Seir, assuming that he will probably see Jacob soon. And meanwhile, Jacob journeys the other direction. Doesn't say he waits. Doesn't say he goes slow. He gets his livestock and kids and he goes the opposite way. So he either deceives Esau out of fear, perhaps, or he deceives himself thinking, I'll get there someday. He never, ever, ever gets there. The next time he'll see Esau will be at the deathbed of his father. And so what you, again, 
see that there's still the old cheat in there. There's the old deceiver still there. But I've also wondered if Jacob actually is not just a little demanding and manipulative, a little deceiving and deceitful, but he actually is maybe disobedient to the Lord. Again, this is, this is right after he wrestled with God, right? Right after he met God face to face, right after he, he had his name changed. So you see this guy, like, you just saw God face to face. What's your problem? The problem is indwelling sin. And we better be careful asking what the problem is because we deal with the same thing. Desires to do right, and yes, the flesh reigns at times. 20 years ago, when Jacob traveled from the promised land, God met him in a dream at a place called Bethel. And that was there where God told him, like, I'm going to bring you back to this place. And Jacob marked that place with a stone pillar. When God commanded then Jacob to return 20 years later to Canaan, he again came to him, and he described himself as, I am the God of Bethel. He didn't tell him directly to go to Bethel, but in Genesis 35, which will be two chapters from now, God will, in the very first verse, directly say, go to Bethel and live there. It's the first time God spoke from the wrestling match to there. And in between 33 where we're at and 35 where he goes to Bethel is 34, one of the ugliest, darkest chapters in Jacob's life where his lone daughter is raped and her brothers murder many in retribution. And we're left to wonder, should Jacob have been there at all? Was he disobedient in settling and building a house for himself and building booths for his livestock before he built an altar for the Lord and settling as opposed to continuing to Bethel. And Succoth, where he stopped, isn't technically really even in Canaan. And that is why when he eventually gets to Shechem, they say, oh, he was in the land of Canaan now. So you wonder if he's just disobedient. It doesn't clearly say, it does in 35, but go to Bethel, but it seems like his instructions from the God of Bethel may have been just that. So we see this this strained relationship that creates this really difficult encounter is an opportunity to expose Jacob's remaining and indwelling sin. And interestingly enough, from Genesis 33 where we're at to 50, the end of the Bible, end of the Bible, end of Genesis, Jacob is called Jacob 45 times and Israel 23. He is called Jacob, described as the guy with a new name, who's actually given it twice or told twice, don't forget your name, he is described as Jacob twice as many times as he's described as Israel. So Jacob is chosen, Jacob believes, Jacob is saved, but Jacob is a sinner with a new name. Meaning he does not perfectly live up to his name. The new man named Israel, has to struggle with the old man named Jacob as a war in himself. 
But God's covenant promise to Jacob is the same as it was to Abraham and it was to Sarah and to every Christian when He changes our name. That who you are and who you will be is actually not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon what I'm going to do. As Paul so aptly writes to the Philippians, one of the most encouraging verses in the Bible in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're all Jacobs. And God saved us for those who are in Christ and He is still saving us from the presence of sin that fights to rule in our lives. Well, in time, Jacob makes his way to Shechem, which is uh, even further away from Edom and Esau. And as I said, the next time we'll see Jacob will be when he's at his deathbed for his father Isaac. And from what we read in Genesis 35, when Esau sees him again after he deceived him and never came to Seir, Esau doesn't condemn Jacob. Doesn't say anything about him. Doesn't say anything about what he ever did to him. Doesn't say anything about him lying to him and not coming. Doesn't ever bring it up ever. Now, strangely, the Bible says in several different places that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. And what that really means is that he chose Jacob. He showed favor to Jacob. He made covenant promises to Jacob and he didn't make to Esau. And even though God did not choose Esau, even Esau himself recognizes that God blessed him and clearly God worked a miracle in his heart so he wasn't bitter and resentful and violent when he saw his brother again. So in this text, we clearly see ourselves in Jacob. We see the goodness that comes out. We see the ugliness that comes out. But I think it's just amazing that it's actually through Esau that we see God teaching us most clearly about Himself. Esau's response to a sinner like Jacob, I believe, is a picture of our father's response to our own sin. Consider how Esau responded, right? He forgives Jacob. He never, as I said, brings up Jacob's past sin, not once. He says nothing about being cheated, nothing about being robbed, nothing about his hospitality being rejected upon his return. He knows what Jacob has done, but he never ever holds on to it and never brings it up. But secondly, we see Esau more than just forgiving immensely. I'm not going to hold that against him. He's embracing his brother. He loves his brother genuinely weeping with his brother. Even though Jacob identifies himself as Esau's servant five times, right? I'm your, you're the Lord. Uh, I'm your servant. Bowing to him. What did Esau call him? The only time he ever identified him is you're my brother. Oh Lord, Lord, your servant, Lord, your servant, brother. He embraces him as his brother. More than anything, more than birthright, more than blessing, more than punishment for Jacob, Esau desires relationship with his brother. 
Esau not only forgives, not only embraces him, but he actually offers him help. He doesn't just take the present and leave. Thanks. Glad this is fixed. See you later. He does not just make peace and walk away. He invites Jacob closer into his own home. And he offers whatever he has to offer to help him in that regard. He doesn't argue. He doesn't force him. He doesn't like, come on, you better do this. You know I could have done this to you. He doesn't say that. He merely offers to assist in any way he can. And although he has the right to take, he gives and he gives and he gives. In many ways, what you see is Esau doing all the work. And yet Esau was the victim. Esau was the offended. He was the one sinned against, and yet he is the one that shows grace. Can you only imagine the surprise when Jacob bows the seventh time? He looks up, and he's like, Esau's running, like, oh, here it comes. I'm just going to get slaughtered. And he just grabs him. And he just hugs him, and he's just weeping. I must have shocked Jacob. And you go, why did it shock Jacob? Why would Jacob be so shocked? Because he knew what he had done. He knew what he deserved. He knew that he actually, at least earlier, Esau wanted to kill him. And rightfully so. But instead, we see Esau longing to forgive him. Delighting in seeing him. If this isn't a picture of the Gospel... I'm not sure what is. A picture of the gospel for both believer and unbeliever. An invitation to the unbeliever and a reminder to the believer of how the Father relates to us in our sin. See, like Jacob, we're all like Jacob, we're afraid to come to the Father. We're afraid for fear of what He might do because of what I've done. I know what I've done. It's ugly. No one else even knows. And I'm scared. And like Jacob, we're, we're so afraid. At times we start coming with big gifts. Okay, maybe this will make, make the Father happy. And so we bring gifts of money. I'll just give. and Maybe gift of morality. I'll be really good. Or gift of merit and works. I'll do these awesome things and then the Father will be happy with me. But do we understand that like Esau, the Father shows His love for us in that while we were sinners and hostile enemies, Jesus died on the cross for us. That He didn't save us when we were good. He saved us knowing just how bad we were worse than we even think we are. And what you see in the Gospel is God the Father doing all the work. God the Father is the victim. God the Father is the offended. God the Father is the one who was sinned against. And yet, God is the one who shows ultimate grace again and again and again. God is the one who runs to meet us as we're cowering in fear. God is the one who blesses us. God is the one who forgives us and embraces us and offers to help us as if we were perfect. 
Consider briefly the picture of the prodigal father. And I'll read just a few verses. If you're not familiar with the story of the prodigal son, it's in Luke 15. It's a story of a son who takes his inheritance and goes and squanders it and loves the world and indulges in the world. And he's so fearful to come back home. And he finds himself living with the pigs at his father's house, working like a servant and a slave. Here's what he says when he decided to go do that. Verse 17, he says, But when he came to himself, this is the prodigal son, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. So he's hungry and he goes, I'll I'll rise, I'll go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your hired servant. Isn't that what Jacob does? I'm not your brother, I'm your servant. I'm not worthy to be called your brother. And he arose and came to his father. You'll see this as God the Father. You and your sin, whether you have confessed it or not, in fear of what the Father's going to do, what our Creator's going to do, how He's going to react to you, consider this is what the Bible says. Jesus' own words of how the Father is going to react to you. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. This is who our Father is. The Father sent Jesus to save sinners, and He is still saving sinners from their sin, even those He's already saved. If you truly know who you are, then You are, as I am, every time I soberly think about it, shocked how the God the Father runs after me and not over me. How He stoops down to hug me and not hurt me. When you were your weakest, when you were your darkest, when you were your most hostile and rebellious, that is when Jesus died for you. God knows exactly who you are and exactly what you've done. And that your sin and my sin deserves His wrath. But God loves us and He wants to be reconciled with us. And I would compel you to simply confess your sin. Admit that you are weaker and uglier and more rebellious than you would ever truly admit unless God Himself began to tickle your heart and say, I already know. I already know. Be reconciled with Him today. And through that, find the strength and the power to be reconciled with those other broken relationships in your life. But it starts here. 
It starts there. It starts here. This is the table of reconciliation. It's where God reveals both the depth of our sin and the depth of His love for us at the same time. It's the big hug, if you will, by God as we come to the table and we feel Him just go, you're forgiven. Where He says, you are not just my son, you are my friend. This is the message of Christmas, actually. It's not just about a baby in a manger. And I'll close with the first lines of that song, Hark, the Herald's Angels Sing. We sing that a lot and maybe don't really read the words. It says, Hark, the Herald's Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Be reconciled with your Lord today. Let's pray.